welcome to the FE Research Podcast, a podcast that aims to showcase the practitioner inquiry, scholarship and research being carried out within further education. I mean, for me personally, I, I always like writing. I mean, sometimes my blogs turn into books. Um, I can tell you from my book, Navigating uh, the Toggle Tournament Guide for K-12 Classroom and School Leaders, I wrote essentially 12 blogs about all the various topics in the book. And then I'm like, all right, well, this needs to be talked about in terms of in the context of a book. So I was able to uh, create a proposal and send it out to a number of publishers and Peter Lang Academic Publishers picked it up. Welcome to FE Research Podcast. My name is Joe Fletcher-Saxon and my partner in crime is... Hey, it's Alistair Smith. Hello, Joe. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. It's been a while since we've recorded one, so it's nice to be back. It is, but seamlessly, as people listen to this, they'll never know. Uh, so we are we're sort of coming towards the end of season two. We've 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 gone, I think that's like a bit American, actually, saying season two. Seasons, yeah. Yeah. So which actually relates to our guest tonight. Yes. So um we are welcoming into the podcast world with us tonight uh, dr matt rhodes all the way over there in san diego that's that's positively exotic for us matt how are you i'm doing well i'm enjoying a nice you know 75 degree fahrenheit day like it is usually here and uh not oh. ready to eat lunch after we record so it's uh definitely uh nice to chat and then it'll be nice to have a break yeah. Um, oh, you're just bragging now about the lovely weather. Mind you, it's quite it's quite nice here. It's not bad, not bad here. So I'll just tell people listening that um, you are an ed tech trainer, a university adjunct, which you'll have to explain to me later. I'm not sure it's a term that I'm familiar with. Um, you are an author, a consultant, a podcaster, a researcher. You work in adult education. You've recently Oh no, you're about to release, but by the time people listen to this, you will have released a book called Amplifying Instructional Design. So you sound like a, a pretty busy, busy guy. So uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. Do you want to start telling us about by telling us about your role then? Yeah, so my role is really interesting. Um, so I am essentially I cover all of the educational technology and instructional uh, special development coaching for a consortium of adult schools, and that includes a community college. So we serve, um, it really ranges um, a lot of career technical education classes. We have nursing, computer coding, uh, computer classes. We have um, ESL classes. We have um, a variety of different uh, classes that go from like welding, machining, um, health essentials, um, and then also uh, diploma um, programs as well for students that want to get that high school diploma that may have not received one. And we serve students that are about 18 to 80 years old. So you may go into a class where you see students of all different ages, uh, different contexts in their lives. And it's uh, really interesting to work in um, day to day because there's so much variety. And if you go to different schools or, or different programs, maybe online or uh, in person or they're blended. So it's great to see just the variety and just different things on a daily basis. 
And I also do some work on operations and leadership as well as uh, some IT backend stuff with our LMS and stuff like that. But that's not really exciting. So I'm not going to talk about it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the least sexy part of your role. Yeah. Um, so how, how is um, adult education um, seen or valued? Um you know, are, are people very keen to engage in learning after they've left compulsory schooling? Or is it, you know, certain types of people, maybe people wanted to get back into the job market or leisure or, you know? It just really depends. For It's definitely like program-based. So, for example, um, in our ESL classes, we have a lot of students that are immigrants that have come to the county that have wanted to, you know, build their English skills so that they can go out into the job market. And then we have pathways from those ESL classes to build further skills, like, for example, nursing or um, like phlebotomy or, um, you know, going into like a business class. Um, we have these pathways within our adult schools as well as going into our community college so that they can get employment. We also have students that uh, may want to change their careers. We have real estate classes. They can go get their real estate license. We have you know computer classes. They can get a ton of different certifications that may upskill them for a specific role that they're in or just something that they want to do in the future. Um, so we have a Whole wide variety. variety. It's just yeah. really just depends. And it's everyone has different motivations. But at the same time, I think that if the student is coming to us and they've signed up, that's really a big step for them. And the commitment levels is from what I'm seeing in terms of retention, it, we have a pretty good rate of retention for many of our programs. Mm-hmm. And the longer the program, I feel like if it's like a cohort based or um, long term program, we have a court reporting program where students learn how to use um, like a stenograph to um, type for court proceedings. That's our longest program, which is 18 months and our retention rate is pretty high. So um, it just really just depends. Yeah. So how many students are we talking about across your group, your consortium? So it varies. Uh, Definitely COVID hit the consortium hard. At one time, it was about 12,000 students. Now it's about like five to six um, thousand students and our consortium within California is probably larger than average. We're not the biggest, but we are in that upper echelon in terms of size, in terms of enrollment in, in schools. And the consortiums within California adult education range in size um, from just one little small school to uh, a variety of schools up to about, I think 16 might be the largest one in Los Angeles. Yeah. So okay. it's really uh, interesting of how they're organized within California. Yeah. Um, and, now, and do um, adults pay to come on the courses or does the state fund them? So for some of our courses, it requires students to pay. More of our career technical education classes require a nominal amount. We try to keep it, you know, under $100. There are some that are more expensive that are more long-term, like our reporting classes, 18 months, and it costs, I think, six to eight grand. But at the same time, students that complete the program get certification, they can be making up to 90 grand when they get out. Um, Our ESL programs are free. Um, So it just really depends on the program. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, it's just interesting to hear about, you know, similarities and differences between you and, and the UK, which we've talked about before, of course. Um, so let's let's think about you now. Uh, you are Dr. Matt Rose. So you've obviously um, studied to a high level. Tell us about your doctorate qualification. What, you know, what did you study? What did you research? Yeah. So I'm from the K-12 world and I got into adult ed just over the past 12 months. So definitely new in that world. And it really had nothing to do with my research. Uh, I come from the special education um, realm of K-12 education in the United States, so supporting students with uh, disabilities and providing services to help support them um, navigate the curriculum and and meet their goals. And uh, I've always been fascinated with uh, student data, collecting student data and ensuring students are making um, progress in their learning. And it stems from my background in special education and my dissertation research is on data literacy. So I surveyed the entire state of California of uh, school leaders and I wanted to see, did they understand or have some knowledge of a variety of themes that we find within the research on data literacy to make data-driven decisions, as well as how can we propagate uh, data cultures within our schools and essentially just the summary of the study uh, came up to as that a lot of school leaders, district leaders really don't have a solid foundation of of, of data and um, just the basic tenets of data literacy, as well as this notion of creating uh, data-driven cultures, um, because simply they don't have enough time. Uh, It comes down to dispositions and values. Do we value doing this within our uh, schedule and um, our schools? And also just the capacity. They didn't get the skills within their administration uh, master's programs or in their uh, credentialing programs to the extent that they need to, to navigate a lot of the data systems and data that they're collecting on a daily basis. Right. Okay. Um, and, and what part does research play in your life now? So it's funny. I learned the skills of doing the research in my doctorate and my master's. And I take that to what interests me very much is uh, integrating instructional strategies with um, technology to hopefully amplify and accelerate student learning. So just really going into research databases and finding really good research that is reliable and valid and seeing if I can put it into practice or seeing if others are putting it in practice and really write and talk about it so that we can see that happening in classrooms and really trying to push forward that capacity of teachers using um, you know, various instructional strategies with technology so that we can make learning better for students and, and accelerate it for them. So that's kind of the skills that translate, although it's a completely different uh, area, um, as I think some of my interests have changed, but the skills have, have definitely, you know, helped me do that uh, form of writing and putting it into practice. Hmm. So we should mention your book then, um, Amplifying Instructional Design. Um, to tell us a bit about that um and you know i think you've written that with somebody else haven't you as well i did yeah i wrote it out with becky lamb and it, I, I last year i came out with a book by myself which is navigating toggle term a guide for k-12 classroom and school leaders and this book amplifying instructional design is one that i co-wrote and edited with becky lamb where we took 
educators from across um, North America and some parts of the world to collaborate and write about how are they taking these research instructional strategies and using that technology that's available to them in their context to um, amplify student learning. So really just going step by step of how to integrate these strategies and the author's voices are shown and um, my co-author and I put forth our analysis throughout the, the book. And we talk about the topics of engagement, strategies, collaboration, as well as assessment and feedback for this particular book. And it's a book one of a series of four and each book covers a various um, area of subjects. And uh, so it's uh, really uh, exciting to see just the collaboration and what's going on in teachers' classrooms across the world is that that helps me not only when I'm writing this, but to put it into my practice and my coaching and my professional development, have that ability with that connection with those uh, collaborators, as well as my professional learning network. And it's uh, definitely, you know, twofold in how it, you know, helps me further my practice as well as hopefully it can impact others in their practice in their context so other um educators that you work with closely across your consortium is being involved in educational research you know, the norm are, are lots of people or are they you know reading applying things from practice or undertaking their own research what, what does that culture look like um, it really just depends. I think a lot of educators, not only in my consortium, but within the United States, simply just don't have the time built into their schedules. So we have to put in time for them or give them the resources themselves for them to check out. Although we do have, um, you know, people that I think utilize Twitter very much as a towards of a professional learning network to access resources and strategies. Um, I don't know on a daily basis if we see many people going into research databases and looking at practices. Um, although I think that we need to, within our school systems, um, provide more training and skills in relation to that, because I think there, there's a big gap in terms of taking the research practice and putting it into practical application. Mm. And there's not many people that have the skills to bridge that. And I think that that's where we're going to see a lot of strides in education if we invest in, in uh, building a bridge there between, you know, that research theory and putting it into practice. There are people that can do it, but I think it's very well in the minority. Mm. And do you, um, as a sector of educators, work closely with academics in universities at all in generating new theory about practice? You know, how, how does that work? So within California and in the United States districts do have partners with the universities, uh, although you don't see, it depends on the district, but from my experience, you don't see much of that presence on campus or within the districts. And I think that uh, that is, it's, it just really just depends on, I think, the city and the, and the universities that are involved. And I don't want to make a generalization. But from what I've seen in my experience is that we really do lack um, opportunities to collaborate with local universities in terms of uh, doing the research and uh, then, like I said, bridging that gap. Yeah. I think that there's a disconnect. And I think that there's a lot of it has to do with everyone's just trying to run their day to day. And there's so much into um, management versus strategic partnerships. And it's, unfortunate that you know we don't see that more often in my 
experience. I'm hopeful that it's happening in pockets uh, elsewhere in, in the United States as well as other places around the world, because I think that collaboration is really important and it can help really that local area um, support their students and teachers. Mm. It actually sounds like there's lots of similarities there. Yeah, with us. Um, so I'm interested in your, your podcast or vlog. I don't, what, I'm not sure what you class it as because we can see it faces. That's, <laughs> that's a vlog to me, but it might be a podcast to you. So how, how did that get started? And, and I'm interested to know, was that something about your personal professional development or was it a, a platform you, you, you were using to support other people? I think it's both. I really felt that a podcast at first was an opportunity for me to share just some of my thoughts um, and expertise. And I felt that after the first 10 episodes, I just wanted to bring on guests and start to get to know them and build my network as well as share back and forth some ideas and strategies and and learn from them. And I think for me, it's uh, having a podcast is something that I can go to, you know, every other week or so and, and learn from an expert and get that connection. And to me, that's super valuable. Um, as sometimes I strategically pick guests so that I that I'm interested in, or that my PLN might be interested in, and, you know, just getting to know them and seeing what's, you know, the, the greatest and latest, or just they've been really consistent in what they've been producing and what they've been talking about and just learning from them is, is uh, is great, and as you know, in in your own podcast, having that person to person opportunity to gain that connection as well as learn from them, it, it's really huge. If you take what you learn from them and apply it to what you're doing on a day to day basis, yeah, oh, oh yeah, we definitely see it as a kind of quite a selfish endeavor in a way. <laughs> uh, yeah, speaking to all the people that we want to speak to. Okay, I'm going to hand over uh, to Alistair for the next few questions. Okay, I'm I'm taking some notes down here while I'm listening to Matt to kind of inform the next bits. Um, but you know, actually, I I'm really keen to to jump in on something um, here and just ask you. It's almost like a two part question, really. I'm interested to know if you've got any tips for other educator researchers, but specifically. The, the research you stands about must have been a really long, drawn-out study. So I wonder how you managed to kind of maintain your motivation uh, with the work that you did, because it, it does sometimes feel like there's very little progress in a long, long-term study um, for, a, for a lot of us. So I wonder how you did that. So, yeah, any tips, but specifically about that? Yeah, I would say that the biggest thing for me is just scheduling out time every day. So... I'm the person that likes to schedule out 30 minutes to an hour of writing per day. And whether that's researching and writing, to me, that is, I know that I'm able to just based on my abilities to get down, I feel like progress that day. And I think that when you create that consistent habit, then it's going to continue to motivate you. And sometimes now, if I'm not researching, if I'm not focusing on a book project, maybe I just want to write a blog about something. Maybe I just saw something that I want to further dive into. Um, but I think just creating that habit of writing every day and reading every day. And that really you know, that really helps. And But also, you got to realize is that it, whatever works for you. Some people I know like 
writing for eight hours over the weekend versus writing, you know, five or six hours during the week. So I, I think just whatever your personal preference is, um, go and do it, but make it consistent. And sometimes I like writing it down in my calendar, or my to-do lists, and it's always there. And sometimes I write a little note saying like, hey, I want to like further dive into this or write about this. Um, as that's really helpful. And I think that in the research process, to me, I think the most persistence and perseverance is, is when you're collecting that, that data, especially if it's you're relying on other people and you really got to, it's just, I think in a lot of research now, especially when you're collecting the data is, is that you kind of have to market it. You have to learn how to market your study. And especially if you're doing a snowball, um, using like listservs or social networks to, to um, you know, provide others with your survey, you gotta, you know, really, you know, grind it out and, and, and share it out. And uh, I don't know, I, I, I think in terms of that motivation, besides the habit pieces, uh, I don't know. I, I'm just a very high thing is I, I hate talking about motivation because I'm a highly motivated person and everyone's different. So Everyone has their own little carrots that they have. Um, but I think just having that personally is really helpful. That's really interesting. And, and I noticed that, you, you know, there's, there's that kind of running theme there, time. But of course, when you were talking to Joe before, you were talking about how other educators around you might not have that time to be able to take part in research. So I suppose, you know, that, that that's really important here. You're able to make the space for that time to have a, a regular research um, activity going on and things. Um, so as you know, besides other research and things, I'm, I'm interested to know um, the kinds of professional development that's offered to your teachers and educators around you as well. Um, if I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so we provide a lot of different types of professional development. So, and, and you have to cater it towards, you know, the teachers that you're working with um, versus K-12 in adult education. K-12, sometimes schools have mandated hours, like when they're supposed to provide that professional development. In adult education, there isn't because most people are part-time versus full-time. So there's not much of you know, leeway there. But what we've done is provide consortium-wide professional development where teachers are actually paid to be there. And the goal is to provide high-quality, um, you know, synchronous professional development that results in teachers creating a work product that they can use in their own classroom. That's ultimately like my goals to provide them, front load them with the material and content, and then allowing them to be creative and dabble with it. And generally what we like to do is have that synchronous professional development followed up by coaching experiences. So I go in and work with them one-on-one -on -one, or we plan something out or I go observe them doing that specific strategy. Uh, then, then outside of that, we do... Um, we have our consortium-wide podcast. So we have teachers within our own podcast uh, consortium share uh, some best practices of strategies. And it's about a 10-minute podcast that we release. It's um, We release it probably every two to three weeks. And it's within our newsletter and on our website. So that's one um, another outlet. Um, every week, we provide a, a new blog or... Um, resources that teachers can get access to with this honor our um, professional development website and newsletter so they can have access to it. Then I also go into um, professional learning communities. Um, so if there's a PLC going on in a specific school, I go in and provide maybe 30 minutes to an hour 
of support that aligned with that PLC goal. Um, and that's pretty much it outside of like individualized coaching. And I think that uh, schools and districts or any sort of organization that invests in instructional and tech integration coaching, you're um, really supporting your teachers and, um, you know, meeting them where they're at in their goals. So that's kind of in a nutshell what we like to do. You know, Matt, it's almost like you can see my notes here because my next question is really going to be about publishing opportunities. Now, what you talked about there were kind of almost the the informal opportunities to share things like the the podcasts and the blogs. And um, you said earlier about the the podcast being quite almost, um, I don't know if it's the right word, but it's it's quite a selfish pursuit sometimes when you can invite people in and, and have the conversations you want to have and find out those things. And I think those are great. But I wonder if there are any more kind of formal publishing opportunities um, that some of the educators in your sector have as well? I mean, for me personally, I, I always like writing. I mean, sometimes my blogs turn into books. Um, I can tell you for my book, Navigating uh, the Toggle Tournament Guide for K-12 Classroom and School Leaders, I wrote essentially 12 blogs about all the various topics in the book. And then I'm like, all right, well, this needs to be talked about in terms of in the context of a book. So I was able to... Uh, create a proposal and send it out to a number of publishers and Peter Lang academic publishers picked it up. And I, I think publishing is very much of, I like to, my metaphor is it's like a wave. And once you're able to start doing it, you kind of understand the methodologies in a game that you're playing with publication. So it's essentially if you understand that there's like a blueprint towards the proposal piece, as well as kind of like, what do your readers or what do those journals or what does that publisher want? Then you're able to like maneuver and figure out kind of like, okay, what's gonna make that person interested or make that um, audience interested and think about what are you currently doing in your practice or in your more, um, you know, I guess, non-traditional publishing like blogs or in podcasts because to me that's like the basis of it all and then you figure out kind of what button you want to press um for example i was talking about the metaverse the other day with uh, one of my um friends who's an editor of a journal he's like yeah i want to you know i really want a piece on the metaverse and how we can maybe in, in, you know incorporate that within the community college and career technical education while you you know, you and someone else that you have that has expertise in it, write a, a journal article about because, you know, my journal and others would be interested. So it's kind of about the conversations you're having, what the interest could be, and then how maybe how about who you can connect with to also write that with. Because I think in terms of writing for publication, it's a lot harder to do it by yourself versus if you utilize the network that you can harness to work together and publish together. <laughs> Yeah, fantastic. Now, right, there's no mistaking here, Matt. I think you said it yourself. You're quite a motivated person. This is really clear in everything that you've been doing so far. Um, what's next on the list? Where where do you want to, to take things next for you? I don't really, <clears throat> I mean, to be honest, I mean, I always think about like my own, like my own like personal mission and vision is like my goal is always to try and 
create impact locally. And then also if I have the opportunity to do it globally, then, you know, I want to try and make a little bit of impact. So, I mean, things that I'm interested in is, is this instruction in educational technology. And um, one of my next publications is launching in August called Instruction Without Boundaries. Um, and essentially the arguments as well as the how-to guide of really creating schools that don't really have the walls of the classroom anymore, but rather that can take place anywhere. And what strategies that are research-based can be utilized by teachers in those spaces to um, accelerate student learning. So I'm really excited about that project. And uh, a few others along the way, I'm not gonna talk about it, but um, that's kind of like my big thing now um, after um, Amplifying Instructional Design is launched. Yeah, I like that. And and I think kind of you hit on something that that resonates with me. Um, so I, I've said before about research that if you can do something that's quite selfishly for you, and I think you mentioned this about the, the CPD opportunities for the uh, teachers that you work with and educators as well, doing something for you, for your classroom to make, you know, your students' lives better. And um, I liken it to an artist kind of hanging something on the wall. And if somebody else likes it, then that that's fantastic and picks it up. So it's really nice to kind of hear that, that aspect of it. Well, I've kind of got got through my questions on my list. I don't know if you have any more uh, questions from that there, Joe. Uh, do you know, I've got some that is, I think it's to do with terminology that I'm not sure about. So I want to just circle back to some of those. What is a university adjunct? Is that like a, a, an occasional university lecturer or something? Yeah, that's pretty much it. It's yeah. a lecture it, and we call it in the United States adjunct essentially means part time. Ah, okay. And, yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, it can mean a lot of different things. I mean, you can be an adjunct lecturer. So I um, I adjuncted two schools. Uh, one is a large research-based university and one smaller private university. Um, the, I adjunct for supporting teacher candidates in terms of um, supporting them in their credentialing, as well as uh, recently been working with some doc students in their research. So I got two doc students um, supervising, and they call wow. that adjunct duties. So um, definitely, um, you know, interesting what you can do, but I can tell you as an adjunct, uh, it's not, it's, it's more for the passion and creativity versus the pay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. Uh, and your other book toggle what, and I didn't, I don't understand that. Is that a technical term or what does that mean? So navigating the toggle term is based on the premise is that originally from the COVID-19 pandemic of moving back and forth between in-person and online based on local conditions. So you're toggling, as you know, like it's a button, you're toggling oh, back and forth yeah. and it's okay. like a pendulum. So that's what that means. Ah, right. Okay. And then my final question about terminology is what's the difference between an adult school and a community college? Yeah. So that's really interesting. Um, so adult education programs are generally non-credit unless there's some sort of um, partnership with the local university. Sometimes there's that dual enrollment credit that goes over to that local university, but generally adult schools are non-credit or just certificate-based versus community college are credit and degree-bearing institutions. Ah, uh, right. Okay. Got you. Um, and it was uh, Matt Alistair that introduced me to was it pickleball? Pickleball, yes. <laughs> that was it. That was it. I know what you see. Now I hear about it all the time since you introduced me to that. No, I'm That's not playing. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, thank, thanks so much for joining us. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. 
and sharing your wisdom and insights. And we look forward to you know, reading some of the, your materials, your books as they come out. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You have been listening to the FE Research Podcast, a Sheep Hill Studio production. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us again soon.